Well, the music's just been wonderful this morning. Thank you to all of you who share your gifts with us. If you have your Bibles, find Acts, please. Acts chapter 21. And uh, we're going to begin reading at verse 7 in just a few moments. We want to welcome Shelly Mills. She's already done the children's sermon for us, but Shelly began uh, Monday, our associate uh, minister to kids and families. We're glad Shelly's here. And she joined the church this morning, which is always a good sign when a staff member joins the church. Acts 21 and verse 7. We'll begin in a minute. <clears throat> this, um, this August, the title of the, the series has been The Cult of True Womanhood. And that is a phrase that comes from a... a a notion from the mid-1800s that people were fighting, more forward-thinking women and men were fighting against the, the so-called cult of true womanhood. The cult of true womanhood was that, that women were subservient to, to men and that it was unfeminine for women to engage in things like business and uh, politics. And of course, part of that was uh, the decades-long struggle uh, to give women the right to vote. Now, this was a complicated thing in the South, as I understand it, uh, for a couple of reasons, mainly because the, well, you know, the, in the South, we had this, this stereotypical view of woman that, you know, the Southern belle, who was, you know, sweet and, and knew her place. But during the Civil War, so many of the men were away. And then after the Civil War, so many of the men had died that women began to assume roles that previously had been assumed only by men, and, and they did a pretty good job at it. And so it was a complicated thing, this conversation about women's roles in society here in the South. But that movement to, find, uh, to, get, to get women the right to vote, of course, came to its conclusion a year, excuse me, a hundred years and uh, five days ago on August 18, 1920. The 19th Amendment was ratified and women could vote legally. Some of them voted earlier and uh, got put in jail for it, but now they could, vote, they could vote legally. So during August, because this is such an historic month, I've been talking about what the Bible says about women and some of the heroes, the women heroes in the Bible and the place of women in the home. We'll talk about that next week and in society and in the church. Now, I know that the place of women in the church has been a divisive topic in some circles, and there's certainly a lots, lots of ideas and misunderstandings and differences of opinions about the place of women in the church. Some of you uh, grew up in denominations or even in churches where women pastors were common. Some of you grew up in denominations and churches where uh, it was unheard of. Some of you are part of our extended family. You worship with us at, at home, and you're parts of members of churches or denominations where it has either been common or, or uncommon. And so I know that along the spectrum, there are various views about women pastors, women in ministry. So I'm just going to ask for a favor for the next 20 minutes or so. Would you just suspend judgment? Now, when I get through talking, you can make your own uh, decision, of course, or, or just go back to whatever you thought before you walked in the door. But could I just, as a favor, ask that you would suspend judgment for the next few minutes and then and, and just hear me out and, and hear my imperfect attempt 
to describe and explain what the Bible says about the role of women in the church. And we're going to read our, our text now from chapter 21 in Acts, beginning at verse 7. We, and we as Luke and Paul, Luke and Paul and the others, Luke is penning these words. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemais, where we greeted the believers and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip, the evangelist, one of the seven. Now, you might remember the seven from much earlier in the book of Acts. The church was young, the church was exploding numerically, and there was a controversy between those uh, who had grown up in the area of Jerusalem and those who had grown up far from Jerusalem over the care of the widows. Those who had grown up locally, those widows from, from, from Jerusalem and Judah or Judea were, seemed to be getting preferential treatment, so there was a controversy. The church elected seven men to help with the administration, to help with taking care of needs, and to bolster the fellowship. Philip was one of those seven. We tend to call them the first deacons. So that's where the seven comes from. He, Philip, had four unmarried daughters, and unmarried is literally the word for virgin, which is a biblical symbol that they were young. Think older teenagers. He had Philip, one of the seven, had four unmarried young daughters who prophesied and, think, preached. That's a broad term, prophesied, but it's one of the words in the New Testament that, that de uh, describes the declaration or the proclamation uh, of, of, of biblical truth. So think, so he had four teenagers who preached. Let me, let me give you a little a few little history lessons from our church. I've been reading uh, church minutes. Doesn't that sound like great fun? From, I began in 1809. I'm up to 1861. There was a fire in 1861, and so there are four years missing, and I'm going to pick up with 1865 later. But in 1861, the records of our church read, Brother J.W. Steele and his wife were elected deacon and deaconess. Now, we don't know exactly what the word deaconess means. Was that a, a real live deacon and they just called her deaconess because she was a female? Or was that a separate, separate role? Was she, you know, a kind of, sort of deacon? We don't, we don't know. I would like to think that even all the way back in 1861, uh, this congregation was giving women the opportunity for spiritual leadership. Fast forward 46 years. Now Mike Kirk, one of our members, pointed this out to us. In the Liberty Baptist Association, and that was an association that our church was part of, of other, with other Baptist churches in the area. In 1907, the pastor of this church, Pastor R.S. Gavin, made a motion at the Liberty Baptist Association that women be granted uh, seats as real messengers, not just guests, but real messengers, that they be allowed to vote and that they be allowed to serve on committees. 1907, our pastor said, let's let the women be real messengers, let them vote and serve on committees, and it passed. Now you think, Travis, that's not such a big deal that, that ladies would be messengers and could vote and serve on committees. Remember, that was 13 years before they could vote in national elections. 
Think about that. Baptists were ahead of the curve on that. That's quite an unusual thing. But we were 13 years ahead of the rest of the country on, on that. Then fast forward several decades, eight decades to be exact. Martha Booth uh, did not seek the office, but she was nominated, as uh, some of our ladies have been this year, as, as every year, was nominated to be a deacon. She had been the Sunday school director. And again, she didn't ask to be nominated, but she did agree once nominated, she agreed to serve. The election was on September 22nd, 1985. The ordination service, there were nine uh, who were elected Eight men and Martha. Three, if I'm remembering right, two of the men and Martha had not yet been ordained, and so there was an ordination service planned for September 29, 1985. That afternoon, the afternoon of September 29, the service was to be held that evening. Uh, Martha was invited, almost say summoned, uh, to the church for a meeting. And in the meeting, uh, she was told, remember the ordination service is planned for later that night. That afternoon in the meeting, she was told that if you become a deacon, it's going to be very divisive in our church. There's some people who can't support you, and there's some who will leave. Well, that was a, that was a tough meeting uh, for Martha. Uh, this morning, you're not seeing it, but those who are watching on Channel 19 are seeing a, a wonderful video of a, uh, an interview I did with her family, the three kids, and uh, Bob. Martha, by the way, if you don't know Martha, Martha passed away a few years ago. So um, Martha's mother had come with her to the meeting and said that when she walked out of the meeting, Martha was crying. She went to the service at 7, and as, if you've been to an ordination service for deacons, generally they will come to the pulpit and give their a brief testimony. But Martha came to the pulpit and said, in essence, um, I don't want to be a, a source of division in our church, and so I'm going to ask not to be considered. She withdrew her name, and uh, Martha and her family uh, left, except for her husband, Bob, who said, I stayed because I wanted to see what was going to happen. So Bob stayed, but the others left, and, um, and the pastor, Ralph Langley, said, you know, she has withdrawn her name. Do we, do we accept her withdrawal, and nobody said anything. So he kind of thought, well, we, we've spoken by our silence. But he called a special business meeting for October the 16th, 1985, on a Wednesday night. And he said, we're going to vote by secret ballot, and the question is, are we going to ordain women deacons? Again, secret ballot. Get this, 556 people showed up for the business meeting. I've never been in a business meeting with 500. I think you total all my years of business meetings, it probably is not 556. When 556 people show up for a business meeting, the pastor gets real nervous because he, 556 people, they voted, yes, we will ordain women deacons. So the following Sunday night, following Sunday night, Martha Booth was ordained as the first deacon, a female deacon in modern history, if we assume that Mrs. Steele was a, a genuine bona fide deacon back in 1861. There are three lessons for the Martha Booth story, at least three. Number one is our church has made uh, hard decisions and had co hard conversations over the years uh, 
and has survived and thrived. And one of the tests of a, a congregation's fellowship is can they have hard conversations? And can they have hard, make hard decisions? And then can they move on from there? And this church has. Number two, the fellowship of our church is, is, is highly valued. Martha was willing to withdraw her name so as not to harm uh, the fellowship of this church. She didn't have to, of course, but she was willing to. Our fellowship is highly valued, but it is not worshipped. By that I mean that churches who worship uh, the God of unanimity rarely do things of importance. Churches that worship the God of unanimity rarely do things of importance. A, a governmental uh, leader from 2002, and I'm not going to tell you from which party, but a governmental official said this, it is less important to have unanimity than it is to be making the right decisions and doing the right thing. It is less important to have unanimity than it is to be making the right decisions and doing the right things. So the second lesson from, from Martha Booth's story is that the fear of disagreement will not keep this congregation from our common sense of mission and purpose, and it will not keep us from our common, sen common sense together of what is the right thing. So one, uh, the church has had hard conversations, made hard decisions. Number two, our, our fellowship is important, but we will not let the fear of unanimity keep us from, from important things. Uh, number three, uh, our church has an unusual place on the Baptist spectrum. You know, Baptists are, there are all kinds of Baptists. Well, when the church voted to ordain Martha Booth as deacon, Ralph Langley, the pastor, got uninvited, disinvited from some speaking engagements among Baptists. So did Steve Tondera. Many of you remember Steve. Steve was a lay person. Uh, he was that year the president of the Alabama Baptist Convention. I'm understanding the first layperson, non-pastor, to be the president of the Alabama Baptist Convention. He was disinvited or uninvited from some Baptist gatherings. So our place on this spectrum is, is rather rare, which makes it hard for us sometimes to know where we fit and where we are welcome and where we, where we feel at home. So our church has made hard decisions, moved on. Our church values our fellowship, but we're not, we don't worship the, at the idol or the altar of unanimity. Uh, third, we are kind of odd birds, if, if you want to say it that way. But that's a little bit about our history. What, more importantly, does the Bible say about women and their place in the church? Last week, we looked at two paragraphs, and we're going to look at them again. I'll read them for you. 1 Corinthians 14 verses 13 through 35. And these two that I'm about to read are the texts most often used to restrict the role of women in church. These are the two texts most often used to restrict, to say women should not be in leadership. 1 Corinthians 14, 34 and 35. You'll recognize these. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. The second, 1 Timothy 11, chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. 
A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Pretty clear on both accounts. And if that's all we had, then that would be the end of the discussion. We, we say in our we believe statement, our statement of beliefs, we believe the Bible is the final authority in what we believe and practice. So if those two paragraphs are all we had, then the, the ladies who have participated already this morning, you know, Gail and Hannah would have, would have been out there. We would have had, we'd have the male ensemble every Sunday. And they were wonderful. They were, I've seen better looking ensembles, but they were wonderful. The male ensemble was great. But that's not all we have. There's this long list of, uh, of women in the Bible who were spiritual leaders. I've gone over that list. I'm going to go over it again and add a couple. From the Old Testament, there were prophets. These are people who heard from God and spoke for God. We've looked at Deborah and Huldah. There was also uh, Noadiah and Miriam and the wife of Isaiah. We don't know her name, but she's the wife of Isaiah, a prophet. Eight centuries before Christ, Joel said, a day is coming when God will pour out His Spirit in unique ways on His people, and men and women will prophesy. Ten days after Jesus ascended into heaven, that day came. And Peter recognized it on the day of Pentecost when the wind of God's Spirit blew into that upper room where those 120 were praying and the church was born. And Peter said, this is the day that Joel was talking about 800 years ago. And he said, Peter said, this is the day when God will pour out His Spirit on all people and men and women will prophesy. Priscilla, a woman, taught Apollos, a man, discipled him, mentored him spiritually. Yodia and Syntyche were leaders in the church at Philippi. Paul wrote of them, they are women who contend at my side in the cause of the gospel. They are my co-workers. Phoebe was the deacon at Centria. And when you read about Phoebe in Romans 16, there are words that describe her as a manager and overseer. Junia was an apostle, probably an itinerant missionary and church planter with all the spiritual authority that comes with that. As the Christian faith moved northward and northwestward up into Europe, Asia Minor and Europe, where they had more forward-thinking people when it came to women in leadership, Lots of those early house churches are associated with women. Athea, Nympha, Priscilla, Lydia, and Chloe. And then Philip had four daughters who prophesied. There were so many unnamed, there were so many uh, women who were prophesying that Paul had to write this in 1 Corinthians 11:5, That women when they prophesy or pray should cover their heads. Now that was for cultural reasons we don't have time to get into. But he says in 1 Corinthians 11:5 that when women preach they should cover their heads. But stop the presses. Now we've got a problem. 1 Corinthians 11, when women pray and prophesy, cover your head cultural reasons. 3 chapters later, women keep silent in church. Now we have what you might call a hermeneutical conundrum, or you might not call it that. We've got, a, we've got an interpretation problem. Because he says to the same people in the same letter, and women, when you, when you pray and prophesy, which are verbal actions, cover your head, 
Three chapters later, women knock it off. Well, that's, that's kind of odd, isn't it? So we've got, we've got two texts from 1 Timothy 2, which was written to Ephesus, and 1 Corinthians 14, written, of course, to Corinth, that say, ladies, be quiet in church. But then we've got this long list of women named, and there's another list of women unnamed, who had roles of spiritual leadership in churches. So what do we do? I believe that the Bible is the revelation of God himself to his people. So because it comes from God, I believe that God does not contradict himself. So the only thing I know to do is to say something was going on in Ephesus and Corinth that we don't understand. Something, there had to be, why these exceptions? There had to be reasons for these exceptions. We don't know the context completely, but we know some things. For example, in Ephesus, where 1, Peter 2, or 1 Timothy 2 was written, to which 1 Peter, Paul wrote 1 Timothy 2 to Ephesus is what I'm trying to say. And in Ephesus, there was this big temple to the Greek goddess Artemis. And the cult of Artemis was like radical feminism on steroids. They didn't want just women to be equal. They wanted to denigrate men. They wanted women to rule over men. They talked bad about men in the cult of Artemis. So was Paul, had that colored what was going on in the church nearby? Maybe. That's number one. We know there was a big cult of Artemis in Ephesus. Two, we know that the early churches were not highly organized. Listen to this description in the 1 Corinthians. When you come together, each of you has a hymn. Now picture this. They're all house churches, by the way. Nothing like this. They're all house churches. So big enough, uh, the crowd is only big enough that, that would fit in a house. So New Testament scholars say probably around 40. So picture 40 people in a house. When you come together, each of you has a hymn. You just kind of stand. Billy, we may want to try that. Just people just stand. If they want to sing, just stand and sing. Each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction. Everybody could preach that wanted to. I don't like that idea. I don't like that one. A revelation. Somebody could say, I believe God has spoken to me this week. And this is what I believe he said. A tongue or an interpretation. The point is, early churches were just forming when these letters were written. We, we use 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Corinthians 14 and say women should not be ordained. But the truth is, in the New Testament, there is no ordination as we know it. The word does not even appear in the way it's talking about something. An event may have been ordained, but not people. We say, use these texts and say women should not be senior pastors. But there, were no, there was nobody in the New Testament with a with a placard on his or her door that read senior pastor. Nobody had a seminary degree and they were, they were people figuring out by God's spirit, figuring out the Christian faith together. So we can't impose our structure on the early church. So we know about the temple to Artemis. We know that the early churches were just now figuring things out organizationally. And we know that in lots of places, it would have been bad strategy 
to put women in leadership. Just like in many places in the world today, if I were going to go plant a church, it would not be good missional strategy to have a woman in leadership because they weren't accustomed to it. It would have been a, a showstopper for many in the culture to have a woman in leadership. We don't know the full context of these of Ephesus and Corinth, but it seems to me that something was going on that we don't understand. We're getting close to the time for you to make your own decision or to go back to what you already thought. So let me just tell you what I think. I look at the preponderance of evidence and I, know, I understand reasonable disagreements, but I look at the preponderance of evidence and it seems to me that these texts, 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Corinthians 14, are the exception. And that long list of, of women leaders is the rule. But now we're, let's, let's get back to the text we read and the title of the sermon, What Do We Say to Our Young Ladies? Let's think about Philip's four daughters. And, and we don't really have to stretch our imaginations much to, to think about this. So the, you have these probably older teenagers, maybe young tw in, in the early 20s. And they say, Dad, we'd like to talk with you. They say, Dad, do you remember that time years ago when, when the church was young and it was growing and the church was divided? over the, the widows. And you remember they had that election of the seven and, and they asked you to serve in that pivotal, important role. Remember how you struggled with that and how you came home and you said to mom and to us, you believed like God had spoken to you and that, that you should do it. He said, well, dad, something similar has happened to us individually, separately. We didn't know what it was going on, but one of us said to the other, hey, I, I'm feeling this call. And, and I said, me too. And she said, yeah, I said, me too. And she said, yeah, I said, me too. And all of us together realized that, that God has been speaking to our hearts and stirring our spirits. And, and it seems kind of odd because all our role models are men, it seems, but it feels to us like we're supposed to, to be proclaimers. We don't know what Philip said, but he must have said something like, Mazel tov. congratulations. So what do we say to our young women? If your daughter comes to you and says, God has been speaking to my heart, I believe he's stirring my spirit to be a minister. If you're a Sunday school teacher in the youth department, or it's your granddaughter or your niece, and they say, I... I need some counsel. I need some spiritual advice. What do you think is, what are we going to say to our young women? I would say to them, it is a wonderful calling. Mazel tov is what I would say. I want to turn, and I'm almost through, but I want to take a, a pretty sharp turn and talk about a woman who wasn't sure what she was supposed to do, who was confused and discouraged. Her name was Adelaide Pollard. She was called, she believed, to be a missionary to Africa, and she was supposed to raise her own support. So she was asking friends and family, and the money just was not coming in, not from her church. She believed God had called her to be a missionary to Africa, but she could not raise the money. 
And she was terribly discouraged. She went to a small Bible study, and an elderly woman prayed this this prayer. Lord, it doesn't matter what you bring into our lives. Just have your way with us. And something about that phrase, just have your way with us, struck a, a deep chord in Adelaide Pollard's heart. She went home that evening and had her evening devotion. In her evening devotion, she prayed from the book of, or excuse me, she read from the book of Jeremiah, the story of the potter. She read these words. The pot he was shaping from the clay was marred. It was imperfect in his hands. So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as it seemed best to him. So that evening, swirling around in her head and echoing into the, in the chambers of her heart, were those, those phrases, just have your way with us, and the image of the potter and the clay. And before she went to sleep that night, Adelaide Pollard wrote, Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Thou art the potter. I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will while I am waiting, yielded and still. Maybe there's a woman here or a girl here or a man here or a boy here who is uncertain about the future and maybe this COVID-19 thing has got you all flustered and you don't know what tomorrow is going to happen. don't know, even know if you're going to have a job. And I just wonder if somebody would hear those words of Adelaide Pollard and say, I, ultimately this is not about me. So just take me and use me, and mold me and make me. So when we finish here, I'm going to wait for somebody who might want to have that conversation. If that molding might involve being a part of our church, I'd be thrilled to talk with you. If it means learning what it means to follow Jesus, then I'd, that nothing would make my day more than to talk with you about the most important decision that you will make. Esther's going to play. Ron's going to have our closing prayer. And then I'll wait for you down front.